Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Ficini. We're presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, we're going to do something a little bit different. So... Danny LaRue is here. Say hi, Danny. Hey there. So I just woke up in Australia. It is Thursday, my time. It's Wednesday, 2.35. It looks like Pacific Pacific time. Pacific time, yeah. Uh, In the United States. And I got a message from Danny at probably, I don't know, in the middle of the night, sometime my time. And I happened to wake up at like 5.30 a.m. or whatever and looked at it and he said, if you see this, it would be funny to do a podcast where you react to everything that happened overnight or something like that. So I was like, okay, like, that sounds fun. Like, let's do this. So I happened to look in my work Slack channel and these are the only messages I've seen so far. These are the only things that I know has happened today, uh, Wednesday in the United States, June 16th. I know that LeBron tweeted about injuries. I know that um, there's apparently a John Calipari coaching rumor. Yeah, that, that, that I hadn't even heard about that before you mentioned it. But okay. yes, that <laughs> is, there is apparently something related to that. Uh And then finally, my editor, the great Sergio Gonzalez, who is one of the best people on planet Earth that I know, put into my Slack channel. So when I file a story, I have like a Slack channel that I input all of my stories to. And he put the gif of Troy, so Donald Glover from Community, walking into the apartment and the whole thing just being on fire and craziness happening. Saying, like, that's what it's going to be like when I wake up. So that, that's the only things that I know so far. I have no idea. And, and, and I want to get I want to give a shout out to our colleague, John Hollinger, for tweeting at some point, which thankfully you haven't seen, basically like, oh, God, Sam Vecini's going to wake up to something. And that <laughs> triggered for me. I'm like, wait, this is a podcast. And so I, I texted you and I G-chatted you and said, if we can pull this off. This might be really interesting. Um, so, so are yeah, you like, are you physically and emotionally prepared for this? Yeah, and I will tell you too. Before I went to bed last night, I saw the Chris Paul news too. Okay, okay. So you so, know the so you know the first thing. Um, yeah, and so because that happened at okay. So yeah, so you I was wondering where that was going to be in it because that was really early Pacific time. So yeah, the first thing that happened. Well, from, the from my perspective. Is, the funny thing is on the Chris Paul thing, I got a text from someone who is connected within like the betting industry, let's say. Um, have you heard anything about Chris Paul? So mm-hmm. I got that yesterday while I was still awake. So, so that's like, so so that's oh. all you know about Chris Paul? No, 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 no. I know I know that he's in the COVID protocols. Yes. Okay. So so five thirty eight AM Pacific time, when I happen to be awake, um, get the reporting from Shams Trania that Chris Paul has entered the COVID protocols and uh, further a little bit of further color from uh, John Cambadoro and others that basically Chris Paul did test positive. So it is related to a positive COVID test. And somebody also told John that he's going to have to pass at least two tests to return. There will not be a further update on CP until Saturday at the earliest. However, Saturday is still before the Western Conference finals will start. They could start on Sunday at the absolute earliest, or they could start on Tuesday if 
Jazz, they will start Tuesday if Jazz Clippers goes to a seventh game. Yeah, so th- this one was one that like you know I had a couple people on my texts like melting down about, and I wasn't that worried because of that. Um, I awarded it one single yike in a text message. I think was the way that I phrased it. Um, I- I'm I'm just like kind of in a okay, let's see what happens with Chris Paul kind of deal. Look, I, I don't want to dive into the world of, like, is he vaccinated? Is he not vaccinated? Like, please, everyone go get vaccinated. That's the right move here. But it, it would be weird to me, I guess, if the president of the Players Association didn't get vaccinated for some reason. Like, that yeah, was also it, it, a it, it, people, people believe that he was. It would be um, – I talked with Ben Taylor. I actually did a um, – did we did Real Jam Radio earlier into the day, um, Pacific uh-huh. Time. And – so, because he used to do a daily COVID podcast, and so the, the, the this would be the second one that we've known of a what's like kind of referred to as a breakthrough positive, meaning that a player tested positive having been vaccinated. The other being Damian Lee. Yep. And he said the big factor, and this is not surprising based on everything we know from other things, is that the big factor is going to be whether Chris Paul is symptomatic. Because if he's symptomatic, then this timeline starts to get serious. And like, you know, even even with him being vaccinated, then we start to get into some questions. But if he's non, if he's asymptomatic, maybe maybe we can be a little bit more optimistic about this. And so we're just going to have to see. Okay. Um, um, so, but yeah, the, that, the, the that wildness. Yeah, that, that one like, feels like kind of a, okay let's hope for the best here i i don't think it's going to affect too much maybe he sits out a game like let's let's see what happens right okay so then 30 minutes later 608 in the morning okay brian windhorst is the original one to report this Kawhi leonard is expected to miss game five against the jazz with a knee injury his status for the rest of the series is in doubt as well there has been much much subsequent reporting Kawhi. the fear per shams is that it, this is an ACL injury, and Whoa. but it could be it could be an ACL sprain. But basically, the assumption is that Kawhi is out at least for the rest of this series, if not the rest of the the playoffs. Slash, who the hell knows? Maybe next season. Like we we still don't know the extent of the injury. There is no formal diagnosis or timeline yet. But Kawhi Leonard is dealing with something. He told the team um, last night, so meaning Tuesday night U.S. time, that to expect him to be out. And remember, he was he got pulled four minutes roughly from the end yep. of Game Four, and I noticed he looked a little bit different. Kawhi is notoriously hard to read, but it did seem like there was something off, and that's an earthquake. That literally kind of changes the title picture a little bit, um, more than a little bit, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what you thought of this Jazz Clippers series over the course of the last three games of it. I mean, it's funny because I felt like the Clippers and Suns were a very interesting matchup for a number of reasons. I kind of think the Suns have a really good matchup on Utah uh, because if there's one thing that the Suns do, it's just absolutely destroy drop coverage because of the way that Chris Paul and uh, Devin Booker can kind of attack seams and everything. But then again, if we don't know if Chris Paul's going to play, the Western Conference has just been totally blown to smithereens now and things have really opened up for utah i guess like yeah i mean that's that's the way that i was thinking about it i got i got a tweet about this to this effect i wish i could give credit but i don't remember who today was a little bit of a bore yeah that (laughs) that somebody saying like how utah's odds of winning the western conference shifted so dramatically in a day that they never even played at least not as of when we're recording this podcast and so I mean, because Kawhi leonard being out that makes the that makes the clippers significantly more beatable and then Chris Paul, we don't know exactly what the timeline is going to be, but he is less, you know, less available than we anticipated. I think that is a fair that sure. is a fair assumption yeah. to make. And so, yeah, I mean, and it's also just massively disappointing when you think about the Kawhi has been wonderful overall in these playoffs that he gets this, you know, the Clippers weren't totally healthy cuz Serge Ibaka is out for the year after having back surgery, but now another one of the top 5, top 10, top 3 players in the NBA is out for an indeterminate period of time. And the other thing that like I hadn't even thought about an ACL, to be honest, before Shams before Shams tweeted it. And that is, you know, like so then we start talking about next year and Kawhi is a pending unrestricted free agent. I still think he opts out even if it's an ACL tear. Um, I, I can't imagine that he won't, and I can't imagine that the Clippers will be like, no, let's not re-sign Kawhi. Exactly. So 
we'll see. Um, it's it sucks, and so yeah, that's so those two happening within a half an hour of each other. That was like okay, things are, and those are I would say in terms of the game on the court, those to me are the two biggest things that happen. There are other there there are a lot of other fun things we will discuss, but those are the two where it's like okay, like this is the these are things. Well, I'm going to be honest. I can't imagine anything bigger than those two things. There is not. Um, yeah. I, and th- this is what I would imagine. Like, I got sent the LeBron tweets about, like, injuries and everything. And this is what I would imagine he was tweeting about, right? The, both of yeah. these, or at least the Kawhi factor, you know, the Chris Paul. Yeah, because, I mean, Chris Paul, Chris Paul yeah. getting COVID. I mean, that's kind of a different thing. Um, yeah. But allegedly. it's it's still really... Uh, I think it was an astute point by LeBron, first and foremost, uh, to be as frustrated about the condensed schedule as he was. I personally, uh, well, it's hard because, like, I think that we probably should have just played fewer games this year. Like, we probably just played 62 games instead of 72 games, right? I understand that that would have affected the television contracts, but, like, to an extent, Right, like not not like to a drastic measure, but the effect that this season has potential to have long term over the NBA in terms of like the Nuggets with Jamal Murray, right? Uh, the Nuggets, I think, would have been in a very good position to go on an NBA championship run if Jamal Murray was healthy this year. Now he has a torn ACL. Doesn't seem like he's going to get back until, what, like March next year, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not going to be before February. And that's right. the other potentially important thing with Kawhi. Here's hoping it's not important, is that this season is, is, is shifted relative to next season. So, heaven forbid, Kawhi has a torn ACL or even a partial tear. Then... Right now, we're even with the end of the NBA Finals next year. We're not even with the regular middle of the regular season or anything else. Like, no. it's if it's a ten month recovery, Kawhi's out for the entire regular season. So we we don't well, know. And, hopefully, hopefully and it's part smaller of the playoffs. Like for right. sure. Yeah, and so um, Jeff Stotts noted that Jay Crowder sprained his ACL and avoided surgery in the 2015 playoffs. But the problem was, in terms of projecting things out for Kawhi, should that be the diagnosis, is that the Celtics were eliminated before Crowder could have returned. So we don't really know like if like if right. that if there's a possibility that's like a five game injury or something like that. I personally don't think let's say it is a five game injury. I don't think the Clippers make it to a fifth game. So it's it's sort of it matters, but it's sort of, you know, it's kind of a different thing. Well, they the mathematically they I mean, like, look, I don't think they make it to a fifth game either against the Jazz. Like, I mean, it's basically Paul George on his own. <laughs> yeah, like they don't uh, they don't have a clear cut. And, and now we're getting to the point where the Clippers are so shorthanded on like wings on perimeter players that yeah. they have they're going to have to start playing, you know, figuring out some stuff. Oh, like it's going to be like Luke Kennard for 30 minutes a night. Right. It like, kind of has to be. Like or maybe more can... Zub, maybe more Zubots. Maybe you go in kind of that direction, uh, but I mean that didn't work out particularly well. Can't do it because the other thing that you know, similarly to Phoenix, with what I talked about, like Utah just has so many different ways to kill drop coverage with the yes. two pull up shooting guards. There's just no way you can do that. Um, yeah, I, I think that you have to go small. I think you have to go probably Canard thirty minutes a night and have him guard guys like Angles and. I don't even know if I feel great about him on Boyan, but you know you're gonna have to maybe make some, you know, make some deals with the devil here, quote unquote. Uh, that's bad. I mean, yeah, this dramatically shifts Utah's title. Like I- I'm like reacting to this on the fly now. Like I'm like trying to navigate all of the all of the thoughts here. I mean, like, hey, like, this me, sucks. U- Utah for has Utah, Utah has to be a Utah has to be a heavy favorite in this series. And yeah, no, for one. sure. Like. I would be interested to know how their title odds have fallen um, in, in terms of betting. I'm afraid to look because I'm afraid to see what else has happened while we're podcasting. <laughs> but it can't like... Okay, so Ka- Kawhi is now out probably for these next few games. And Kawhi yeah. is also potentially out for next series. And so it's like literally we have no idea at this point. Yeah, there is no definitive timeline, but... I think the odds that he like skated by seem extremely low. <laughs> like the odds that it's something where it, it's short, but we don't we don't know for sure. So, you know, I'm a little I, I'm more than a little concerned, but we do not know definitively. Okay. Well, are you are you is that are you are you are you kind of feel like that pod is settled? 
Uh, no, but like, <laughs> yes. Uh, like, I, I just don't know what else. Given that it's such an uncertain timeline, like, it's probably just worth talking about the Utah series, like, real quick. Like, sure. Utah is very clearly the favorite now. Utah is uh, in all likelihood going to go on to play Phoenix at this point if Kawhi misses these final three games of this series, potentially three games. Uh, I guess wouldn't stun me if we saw like a Clippers let's rally around Kawhi moment tonight and like play super hard and aggressive because the one thing that those Clippers guys do have is a lot of like energy for the most part, like guys like Patrick Beverly, Marcus Morris, like Paul George to an extent. Like I, I can see them finding a way to like, especially with Ty Lue, like maybe like grimy some things up and like try and, you know, slow down the game as much as they can. Maybe like, I, I mean, what, what do we think their best strategy is? Like they have to slow down the game and they just have to get like aberrant three point shooting, which means they have to create open three point shots which like and, they, and the Clippers probably they they probably need to try to get stuff in transition, but they don't have the guys to do that. Uh, yeah, I th- I think you can't try and do that. You can't try and run with Utah. I think you have to play uh, very slow, limit possessions as much as possible. Like make it like a '90s game, basically, with guys like Pat Bev, Marcus Morris. Um, you know, like I said, like I think Paul George would be fine in that era. Um, you know, maybe you do play. It's hard. That's what makes Utah so hard because, like, the way you would do that is you play bigger, you play Zubots, you like just try and like you know play big across the board. But like, do you play a little bit of like playing zone against Utah feels like a disaster idea too because of how much they can shoot you out of it. Yeah, I mean, I, you could you could maybe try some different concepts of a zone, like yeah. maybe even a three-two, like and and maybe they'll hit some from the corners, but you could do something like I don't think it. I, I'm skeptical about a two-three just because that above the break three is so dangerous for Utah. Yeah. But it's it's I mean, and and the switching systems will work. I, I mean, they have some guys that can do it, but when you don't have Kawhi, think about the effort that Utah put in to not attack Kawhi Leonard in Game Four in particular. And so now, now Donovan Mitchell has a much easier runway than he did before. And well, the, the yeah. problem is like the lack of two-way players, right? Like, right. It's okay. We have to play Kennard or Terrence Mann, right? Like, or we have to put both of them on the court, and then we have four on five on one end of the floor, no matter if we're on offense or defense, right? So, yeah, th- this just became. I mean, like, look, we we might see the Clippers come out tonight and, like, really work their ass off and, like, fight for this. And maybe they can grimy it up and slow it down and get a win with some, like, aberrant three-point shooting. But, I mean, this became a very, very, very difficult task. It did. Yeah. Okay. Um, Let's let's move on. Let's see. What what else do we got here, Danny? So... Uh, uh, less than two hours later, 7.55 a.m. Pacific time, Woj and Andrew Lopez report that Stan Van Gundy is out as New Orleans Pelicans coach. <laughs> oh, one and done. How about that? The um, second well, the second one and done coach of this season. Yeah, that's, that's, that's bad. So, like, I know that New Orleans fans were excited about the defense that New Orleans played in the second half of the year. Uh, I know that the numbers said they were not that bad of a defense in the second half of the year and that they got better. I mean, you hire Stan Van Gundy to instill a defensive mindset and to like make the defensive mindset work. And I just did not really see that with them. Uh, I saw them taking advantage of bad offensive teams for the most part in the second half of the year and kind of getting some poor shooting performances from those teams. I guess that I think they finished like seventh or so in the second half of the year defensively uh, in terms of rating, but so much of it didn't seem to be culture. It seemed to be like Steven Adams, like holding up the scheme, like he was fucking Atlas or something like that. Um, yeah, that does not surprise me that they would decide to move in a different direction. And I think more coaches and ownership staffs or more um, front offices and ownership staffs should be willing to do this when it's not working because it just didn't seem like the Steven or Stan Van Gundy thing was working. 
We also got a little bit of subsequent reporting. I'm sure there is going to be more to come from the uh, from the uh, from Christian Clark of the Times Picayune that there is con- that there ha- there was conflict and a, a quote unquote strained relationship between Van Gundy and Brandon Ingram. So that that is interesting as well. Um, okay. Well, we'll see. And I mean, I, I'm guessing there will be more to come. That that was a you know kind of a different circumstance and. So the other interesting parallel, I brought up this is the second one-and-done coach of this NBA season, is that in both circumstances here and in, in, in Indianapolis, it appears that the coach who hired and fired the first coach will be the one who hires the second coach. And so in both this and the Nate Bjorkren situation, will David Griffin and Kevin Pritchard go back to the people that they considered last year? and maybe give those a second run and say, oh, we, we misread this person and they did it. Do they look at new candidates? I, I mean, this New Orleans job, it's it's a really intriguing challenge because you have Zion Williamson, who's a blossoming superstar, but the Pelicans roster is pretty locked in and it could be a whole hell of a lot more locked in very soon, you know, depending on what happens with Lonzo Ball and Josh Hart and some other pieces. But there also isn't the necessarily the immediate win now pressure compared to a place like Boston. So I don't, and and arguably Portland as well. So I think of New Orleans as a pretty strong job, like of compared to the ones that are out there. But it depends on kind of what you want and what kind of coach you are. So like th- this is a fascinating question, right? It, if you're New Orleans at this point, is the move to just like tear it down, like right now, and say? We have the guy. We know we have the guy in Zion Williamson, who is going to be a top five player in the league. We have some really interesting young players on rookie scale deals, like Nikhil Alexander-Walker is cheap for two more years. Kyra Lewis is cheap for three more years. Jackson Hayes is fine, but like Jackson Hayes is cheap for two more years. If we can, we can stretch, wave and stretch Eric Bledsoe, we move Brandon Ingram for whatever we can get Brandon Ingram for, and we let Lonzo walk, we have a pretty clear cap sheet at that point and a pretty clear runway to be able to do things and then move Steven Adams as well. Because I, I don't think 17 for Steven Adams is all that onerous in terms of moving him, to be honest. Like it's, um, it's a negative value contract, but it's not heinous. You know, like it's it's not in the same ballpark as some of the other, you know, like, oh, God, we have to get off of this type of things. I do think it's negative value. And Adams is getting older, but he has been generally pretty durable, super durable before the last couple of years. But I I agree with you. I think that using because Zion Williamson... Because you picks coming up, too, right? Right. Like, I mean, those picks aren't necessarily premium assets. Like, that's the, the difference between right. New Orleans and, let's say, some of the stuff that other teams might be getting maybe the Nets picks eventually, also some of the Houston picks that went to OKC, depending on the protection and everything fun there. But I think Zion is the lens. If, if the goal is to be a team that can make the conference finals or win this championship, then I think you you seriously consider tearing down. And I think of Ingram and Zion as a, a poor fit in some ways more conceptually than like actually means, I mean, like personality and all that. Like Brandon Ingram has the skill set to fix next design, but I don't think he particularly wants to do that. And that matters, you know, where the rubber beats the road and everything else there. And Ingram, it's also the circumstance where you want, I think you want to move early rather than late. If you don't think he is the right player. Now, if you do, if you think there's a chance, like, because other teams are interested, Ingram is not a bad guy. He's just possibly a poor fit. And so in that sort of a circumstance, this was the same argument that Nate and I used about trading Karis Lert. Now that ended up netting, you know, on because he just didn't really have a place on the nets. Dinwiddie got hurt almost instantly, and then Levert ended up going, you know, getting in, involved in the Harden trade. So it ended up a little bit different than that. But I could see moving early rather than moving late being good with him. I don't know. I'm still not at the point yet where I have a determination on Kyra, Lewis, and Nikhil in terms of are they starters on a really good team? Or are they more backups? But the other reason why you consider it is New Orleans is at this is in this weird place where Zion is good enough and they have enough surrounding talent that if they don't go aggressively soon, the amount of premium resources they have to really get the other stuff coming is going to be very limited. You know, just right. as a practical consideration, like it's just it's hard to add 
high level talent after um you know once once you're at that point because you're not getting high-end draft picks unless they pull one from somewhere else and i'm skeptical that the lakers picks will be that kind of a return and like they have milwaukee's 2024 first of all that's a couple years out second of all like milwaukee's probably still gonna be pretty good then yeah yeah the the whole bet was on okay does Giannis resign um and then even if he does like those other picks are those other picks are later even than that right like they have like a 2026 right yeah they have stuff like that yeah um Look, I don't think New Orleans is going to like tear this down. I agree. Like, I, I don't think that's going to be their plan. But I would strongly consider it if I was them. Um, in the case of Ingram, I, I really like Brandon. I've been very, very high on Brandon throughout the course of his career. I think he's an excellent basketball player. Uh, I think he needs to work on the defensive side of the floor. I think that you and I particularly and other evaluators thought Zion would be a lot further ahead defensively than where he is. Uh, and I still think Zion has a chance to be very good defensively because he's so athletic. I think that, you know, the way he got thrown in last season, middle of the year, wasn't totally in shape. I think that exacerbated the way that things look defensively. And then this year, it's a totally new scheme, totally new ideas in, in terms of the way that they were playing. And then on top of that, midway through the year, they started to play a different scheme uh, defensively and went more toward like a drop coverage scheme defensively. So... He's played like three different defensive schemes in two years now. Uh, I think that he's probably going to be okay defensively at some point in his career. He's just not there yet. Um, but if you think that there's a chance he's only an average defender and you think that Brandon is not going to be a good defender, I wonder if you try to make a move where you move Brandon Ingram for something like Miles Turner plus. Like, I wonder if you could get like Ingram for Turner and. I, I don't know. What is, give me give me a name that you think would make sense, right? Um, like th- that se- that seems like the move because then you have the stretch five who's an elite level defender. Um, the Sabonis Turner fit doesn't really make a ton of sense to me long term. Um, but Miles is, I think, only under contract for one more year. Even if Miles, so say that Miles stays, you have your center of the future. Say that he leaves, you're kind of so. So out just just so we have it, Turner, like, he's they're they're paying him through twenty two twenty three. Okay, so, so he, he has two, two more seasons. Okay, yeah. so but that's still like an easily movable deal if it doesn't work. Um, I'm just like kind of spitballing and trying to come up with ideas. Again, I don't think they're going to do this, but I agree with you. I think you want to move earlier rather than later. Even though I really like Brandon as a player, I just would. I wouldn't want to make the same mistake that New Orleans made with Anthony Davis, where they put all of their eggs into the basket early with Anthony. They went out and they signed Solomon Hill and, you know, Oshik. Yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, and uh, did they sign a Jinsa as well? I think so, yeah. Yeah, like they went out, they, they spent a shit ton of money, basically. And each one more, if I remember correctly as well, was like another guy that they brought in. And they brought in these like very average players. I guess that like the thing with Brandon is Brandon is not an average player. He's an all-star. But if the fit doesn't work, I think you don't want to be tied to this situation long term, maybe. Well, um, and, and what's what's interesting is the Pelicans, they're limited in flexibility as of right now. But they could change that pretty dramatically, pretty quickly if they wanted to. You know, Zion's gonna Zion's making ten point seven next year, thirteen point five after that, and then he's extension eligible. And we'll see where things are at that point. You know, if, you, if at Bledsoe, if you you could either grin and bear it, and then just he only has a light partial guarantee for the last year, could yeah. even just eat that money. You could structure this a couple different ways. Could do that, Adams. Maybe you find a taker. Maybe it's one of those circumstances where you trade him for a worse player with less money, or maybe somebody just wants to take him on. The center crop is notoriously weak, and so getting a guy on a two-year contract, maybe you have to take on yeah. somebody modest, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then, so, but then Lonzo and Josh Hart, they significantly crimp that flexibility should David Griffin decide to bring them back. And so that was let's, always let's what... Actually, let's actually do some cap math here. So let's sure. say that they eat the Eric Bledsoe money... And just pay him eighteen million and cut him, right? And then they move Stephen Adams into cap space with someone. I think that they probably would be able to do that. To be honest, mm-hmm. um, I don't think that they would like need to give up an additional asset to move Stephen Adams into cap space. So they get someone super cheap on an expiring deal or something. Um, so you have 
Zion and Brandon Ingram, that's like 44, 45 million. Are we talking for 21, 22? Or are we talking, I'm talking for... for the summer of 2022? This would be okay. And so going into the 22, 23 season. So you'd have 45 million on the books or so with Brandon Ingram and Zion at it and say 55 with Jackson Hayes and Kyra Lewis and then 60 with Nikhil Alexander Walker. You can pay Lonzo probably 20 million or so. And given the way that the cap is supposed to move up, you know, plus your they first could have a max this spot. year, they could be pretty close to a max spot. And that's with Jackson Hayes, who, you know, probably not going to be worth $6.8 million in that last year. Like, you'd probably be able to move him pretty easily. So maybe you do. Maybe you do just, you know, keep Brandon Ingram. You keep Lonzo. Um, you keep Zion. You keep Hayes, Kyra, and Nikhil. And then you try to induce someone with a max spot you understand that you're going to be bad this year or maybe you keep steven adams and develop these guys and try to develop a defensive mindset and move steven adams next summer um for the love of god get eric bledsoe off this roster sooner rather than later um it was just not fun to watch that this year but and then you'd have the 3.9 from bledsoe's money too i realized too um yeah i was trying to yeah you'd have but maybe you could even find a taker for that maybe you trade Bledsoe for somebody who's making more but on a shorter contract or something yeah. else like there are a couple different they also they, they can, could also they could stretch that 3.9 like you could so then it's a, basically you know it's a little over a mil yeah that's true um and i think that they probably would do that if they go down that road um, if they if they want to sure but they can stay flexible enough that i think that as long as lonzo doesn't get over like 22 million a year 20 to 22 i think think that you probably do keep these keep this group together because i don't think brandon ingram is going to lose his value over the next year like it it might be in two years like the summer of 2023 he might be a problem for you but i i i think you probably keep this together one more year basically and, and let it ride because there's, there's a, still it's, enough it's, flexibility beyond that it's a totally reasonable approach. I mean, to me, this is a, it is a common refrain that doesn't necessarily make for good radio. But you listen, and if somebody surprises you, then yeah. you uh, then you strike. And if no one surprises you, then you keep it together. At least in okay. terms of the Ingram part of it. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be back for, so Danny can continue to like blow my mind with things. We're talking about players securing the bag. When they get drafted in June, I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot-blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash gametheory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. 
Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. Nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back. So Stan Van Gundy out, Kawhi Hurt, and obviously the Chris Paul thing that I knew about already. Okay. Now, a half an hour after that, so 8.25 a.m. Pacific time, Scotty Brooks is no longer the coach of the Washington Wizards. Okay, well, he was expiring, right? Yeah, so they couldn't, the, the way Woj phrased it is they couldn't come to an agreement on a new on a new deal. And so thus, he will not be the coach. Okay, I was, I kind of thought that that end of the year run might have saved him. I would imagine that like maybe the Wizards offered him if if the way that Woj phrased it was that maybe they offered him like another year and he was like, no, I don't want to be a lame duck again. Like, is that kind of what you're? Yeah. But what's what's interesting to me about it and granted, everybody's working with incomplete information, whether we're talking media members or the principals. I I'm skeptical that Scott Brooks is going to get another job this offseason. And so it it certainly appears that. The Wizards didn't want to pay Brooks what he was making before. Remember, he got a huge, I think it was making like $7 million a year before yeah. this. And Scott Brooks is in that level of coach. And so one theory of it is that they offered him less money per year for what's, I don't know the term, whether it's one year like your idea or three or whatever. And he's just like, no, I don't want to do that. But if it was that approach to me, it's like having a head job with capable players. And, you know, it's, he seems like he has a pretty firm supporter in one Russell Westbrook. Like, yeah. that's not the worst thing in the world, situationally. And while there are jobs that are open, I don't know that there's one that seems like a clear constituency for Scott Brooks, especially when you consider his tenure with the Wizards. And it's not like Washington has really had a calling card. Like, this is this has been a criticism of mine for Brooks for a couple of years, is that you can't point to anything and say, well, if you, when you, like, Steve, let's say Steve Clifford. Like, when you hire Steve Clifford, these things are going to happen, and you can have these expectations. You know, Clifford is a, a great floor raiser. He's done a lot with limited defensive personnel. But, like, oh, Scotty Brooks is going to maximize this talent offensively. Or even at this point, you know, his defensive reputation has been hurt a lot because the Wizards were truly awful. Not this year, but the two years immediately before that. Now, they had terrible personnel, but that's there. And, and also the question of, how desirable is this Wizards job? What do they want to do? The only reporting that I've seen, I mean, of course, there is the normal bandied about, but the one that had a little bit of sizzle for me is Wes Unsell Jr. When you think about his father's connection to yeah. the franchise, but also the, there, have been, there have been a lot of connections between the Wizards and the Nuggets in the past, too, including trades and everything else. And Tim Connolly being from the area. Tim Connolly being from the area. Yeah, I, I would I would think that that there are so many connections there. Tim Connolly from the area, I believe. I don't want to. Well, yeah. Didn't they recruit him for that job originally? They did. I and I think that there is like a relationship there. So I would imagine that Connolly would go to bat for Unselled. Unselled would obviously have the familial connection there. I think that's a great hire. And on top of it, like you talk to anyone in Denver, Wes Unseld Jr. is a fucking hell of a coach like does an incredible job with their defense. I mean, think about how hard it is to craft a functioning defense around Nikola Jokic. Um, and it works right. Uh, he, I mean, I mentioned him probably a week ago on Twitter as someone that I thought made a lot of sense for these teams that have an open vacancy to chase. So I, I would fully endorse Wes Unsell Jr. as a head coach. Um, maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. Right. Like you never know what happens when an assistant moves up. But, like, for instance, Nate Bjorkren, right, went full disaster mode. Um, but Unsell doesn't have that, um, like, reputation uh, or anything like that. So you, you would hope it would work. In, in and, terms, and, and, Sorry. In, and while Scott Brooks is, you know, we, there have been discussions about him being elsewhere, you know, for a little while now, whether it's fit with the Wizards, I advocated for him not to be brought back. He was the seventh longest tenure head coach in the NBA. And now, other than the top six of Pop, Spo, Carlisle, Kerr, Snyder, and Malone, every other coach in the NBA was hired by their current team 2018 or later. That's hilarious. That's wild. But you it's, were going to say really something is, else when I interrupted you. 
Well, here's what I was going to say about Scott Brooks. And I think that, yeah, in terms of like on court product, there is no defining mechanism with which you can like expect him to be successful. Right. What he does have a great, uh, a great reputation for at the very least is developing players, which makes me like think of Orlando, for instance. Right. Um, you know, Steve Clifford leaves Steve Clifford floor razor, not necessarily, you know, doesn't doesn't love playing rookies if he doesn't have to. Um, not a great fit for that Orlando job. I wonder if Scott Brooks is a fit for that Orlando job, just in terms of development and everything. And and it's always you know in those circumstances, and we brought this up with Wes Unseld. Oh nope, Scott Brooks didn't didn't play for the Magic. I thought he did. I was thinking of Scott Skiles. My bad. Um, <laughs> so that also means that there are six currently six open head coaching positions in the NBA. New Orleans and Washington open today. And then Orlando, Portland, Boston, and Indiana. And that is a stronger than usual group. I mean, in terms of teams that you could, there there are three teams there, Boston, Indiana, and Portland, that I would expect, knowing what we know right now, to make the playoffs next year. Maybe not a ton of noise, except in the case of Boston. And then New Orleans, Washington, absolutely plausible. And then Orlando is more of the rebuilding job, but I think it's a reasonably palatable rebuilding job. You know, it's not like, it's going to take a while, but it's, they have their own picks they, you know, don't have a ton of terrible money on the books beyond this coming season. So, like, that's a pretty strong set of openings, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'm trying to think if there's going to be anything else that opens. Probably not is kind of my immediate reaction to that. Uh, unless, like, Milwaukee just, like, totally flames out uh, in their next game, right? Yeah, I, th- I think that's pretty reasonable. Yeah. Um, yeah, Milwaukee, it seems like, has a pretty good chance to open. I guess. And that, that would immediately be like the highest tier job on the market. But um, yeah, I think that, you know, Washington's such an interesting job because they have the impending Bradley Beal decision to make. Like you basically have to try to extend him or you have to try to trade him. Like there, there's not really an in-between. Like if he says no to the extension, you have to move him this summer, right? Because that's an indication, like as much as he said he wants to say, that's an indication that he's not committed to it. You know, right. like that it's it's different than last off season where there was kind of a holding pattern for everyone because, right. you know, and, and get into that. So, yeah, I think that's a very fair point. OK, the next the next give thing me, that happened, thing, this yeah. is this is less surprising. It was, I think, roughly an hour after that, that Mike Conley is going to miss game five. Okay. Um, and we got a little bit of subsequent stuff from Conley himself. Actually, um, I saw Tim McMahon with it first. So here I'll read you the quote. Conley. I'd been pushing really hard to play early in the series and had a small setback related to the hammy during that process. This is why it's been extended a bit longer than we all like. Obviously, if I could play, I would. Yeah, I mean, the pressure just went way off of him in terms of getting back with the Kawhi injury, right? So Yeah, that's true. Like, And, and theoretically, worse comes to worse, if they lose game five on, on Wednesday U.S. time, yeah. they, if he, they could try to rush him back for game or not maybe it's not even rushing to have him back for game six right and donovan mitchell like we we wondered about what his status and while i'm worried about a re-injury there just because we've seen him tweak it tweak that right ankle a couple of times right they're the jazz are in a pretty good spot and they don't need to they don't need to be aggressive right now and and the other thing is like for for utah if they need to be aggressive with conley they'll know ahead of time it's not going to be a circumstance where things and, and even if they lose one game, then then they'll they'll get into that. Um, we also kind of this again is not a surprise. Kyrie Irving is going to miss game six of that series and Harden is actually not listed on the injury report. That doesn't mean he's healthy, but he's not listed on the injury report yeah, after that bananas game five. Um, so not really a lot to talk about there. That is exactly what we expected. Yeah, we're, we're going to we're going to close the show talking about Kevin Durant for sure. Oh, but, absolutely. Uh, yeah, not a surprise there with Kyrie. Um, yeah, I, I figured at this point he wouldn't be back before seven. Uh, we'll see if Kevin Durant can just like flat out rip Milwaukee's heart out in game six. And then at uh, about 11 o'clock Pacific time, we got the news that Donnie Nelson as no longer a no longer going to be a part of the Dallas Mavericks franchise. <laughs> Nelson Nelson has been he's been involved there since I believe ninety eight because oh after he God. moved over from the Suns. And I mean that's hilarious in light of the story that the Athletic published uh, it, 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 earlier it, this week. Since I know you swear on your podcast, the as Mark Cuban put it, total bullshit. 
report that was out there at the athletic earlier this week and um some report subsequent reporting i believe was from mcmahon that the decision was made on sunday um and as is a natural follow-up question there have been conflicting tea leaf readings on whether and this originally was stunning the first person to say anything on this was kevin o'connor who said that he said it looks like uh bob vagaris is going to be gone too but then that is when walked back a bit and there there, it's unclear um can can we talk real quick though about the (laughs) about the story that tim and sam published which is amazing absolutely uh, on a number of fronts first and foremost like shout out to tim and sam uh and I've, you know, DM'd with Bob a couple times, and he's been nothing but good to me. Um, you know, he's been complimentary of me, and I'm very appreciative of that from Bob. And this was before he was working for the Mavericks and everything. And, and in the interest um, of disclosure, I have had interactions with Bob as well. Yeah, and, you know, he's been nothing but good to me. So, like, I, I you know, maybe, you know, that shades this a little bit. But um, that that story to me, I thought Robbie Calland uh, put it best uh, from Uproxx. He was like... Man, how much does uh, Bob Vulgaris have to be hated in that Mavericks office for that story to come out? Because it just felt like one after another person went to Tim and Sam and was like, oh, we shitting on Bob? Oh, I'll give you everything. You know what I mean? And like and, 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 it's, and there was dirt that presumably came from different places, like the stuff with the scouting and the 2020 draft. And then I, I, the will, Luka- I will say this, too. Like, I talked to uh, – look, I, I don't know what happened there. But I do know that there were a couple agencies that weren't super happy with the Mavs draft process on their end. We'll put it that way. Mm. And that's another interesting constituency to consider in, in some of this type of stuff. And as the piece got into, and I thought, I thought to me this was the money, the money quote was from an unnamed team source, which is always fun. Basically that Cuban is the most important person in the Mavericks organization. And number two is whoever he listens to. Right. And... That means you get all of this complicated stuff in terms of soft power and hard power in terms of like, okay, if Cuban is the decider, who actually has his ear? And it gets into the point where titles don't matter anymore. And I mean titles referring to job titles, not championships. Yeah. And it is extremely difficult to calibrate in those circumstances. And that could even lead to a circumstance where like, Maybe Bob Vigaris isn't on the payroll anymore, but he still has power within the organization. It could lead to the reverse. It's like what happens in Sacramento, right? It's whoever has Vivex here. Um, Right. Whenever you talk to people in Sacramento, right? Like like Joe Dumars had Vivex here while he wasn't working for the organization, seemingly. So, yeah, I mean, that's what happens with these ownership situations that are very involved and look i don't mean to compare mark cuban to vivek i think that would be wholly unfair to cuban um you know he's just not a meddler like that uh he is involved from what i gather but but, you know not nearly as impulsive and impatient with these things right so uh it's it's interesting though that in light of that story like and you wonder i mean yeah i i have a lot of i don't want to like get into like the background of that with like one of our stories at the site um i'm just fascinated by how that came together um it it was literally just like hey everybody let's go shit on bob vulgaris hour i mean it it, it was what it felt like tim tim mcmahon also reported that they've hired uh Sportology, which is a sportsology, which is a consulting firm that has often been used in GM searches to look for a new head of basketball yeah, operations. Is that, but is that uh, Mike Forty? Right, it is. Yeah. So we'll we'll see. I mean, there's there is a lot that we will learn about the Mavericks. I mean, they haven't changed personnel leaders in a long time, and so we'll learn a lot about Mark Cuban and his process by what we can tell about the power structure whenever they hire and announce the next steps. Yep. Okay. There. That's a lot. Uh, that's pretty much everything. Oh, okay, um, I cool. think. I think so. The other thing that came out during that time, because I know you'll have thoughts on it, was that Labello Ball was announced as rookie of the year. Oh, okay. Um, expected. Yeah. yeah. Um, Anthony Edwards had a great second half of the year, but was not awesome in the first half. Right. That's I, actually something you and I talked about the last time we did a podcast together. Yeah. So. If memory serves. Yeah, I think that uh, in terms of the totality of a season, I thought LaMelo was better. Um, you know, Anthony Edwards' second half was better than, you know, arguably anything LaMelo did. But 
I don't think that it made up for the difficulties that Edwards had early in the season where he was like a genuine negative player for Minnesota. Um, yeah, yeah, good good for Lamella. I think that was that's who I would have voted for, as I said on the podcast with Tony Jones doing awards. So, yeah, good for Lamella. And I'm looking briefly through to see if there's... And so yeah, what, what, is, it, what is the Calipari thing now? So... As I heard, so I looked it up a little bit after you after you mentioned it, and I think it's that there. So there was a report. There was a report from Yahoo um, about kind of coaching candidates to watch. Uh, it was Ben Rohrbach and, and Vince Goodwill, and so and I believe that he was in, Calipari was included in that. Um, so they had sources that told them he would be open to jumping to jumping back to the NBA, um, and Calipari has since denied it. But I don't know. It seems possible. Yeah, I mean, anytime that John Calipari's name comes up with NBA jobs, I'm always pretty skeptical because it hasn't happened yet, right? Um, I, I will say that, like, the, it, it hasn't, it's been, it hasn't even been a secret. Like, I think it's been pretty open that Calipari was not super pleased with the way that this season went. <laughs> but, I, yeah, I'm, I would be staggered if he would go. I mean, just like think about it logically. Like John Calipari makes like ten million dollars a year and basically has a lifetime contract at Kentucky. Like, I understand yeah. that maybe he wants a different challenge, but I can't envision giving that up in order to go um, shoot your shot in the NBA again. Right? That seems reasonable to me. I mean, maybe it's he's at the point you know you start to think about your like basketball mortality, and he's just like doesn't want his NBA resume to be closed where it is. It's possible, but I don't know. Uh, maybe i mean but so i, I get it i mean I, yeah I, the other the other thing for me and this can be a way to tie it back to where you wanted to end it is all of this happening on the heels of that incredible indelible game five performance by kevin durant and the win by the nets and everything else it's like it's also unfortunate and it's a part of why when i i did real gm radio with ben taylor we spent the first 40 minutes talking about that game because we we had a lot of thoughts and we had everything we want to talk about is because I first of all I love the game on the court like that is even though I do you and I both do a lot of stuff in terms of the you know yeah. the CBA and everything else it's like we love watching basketball that's why we spend the time to know it the way we do and that was an incredible one it was unbelievable it was uh, we literally got to see you know in my case yesterday afternoon in your case last night one of you know, someone who's going to go down at the very least as one of the 20 best players in NBA history, let's say. He painted his masterpiece last night. Like th- at, 30, at 32. At 32 years old, coming off of a torn Achilles two years ago, he painted his masterpiece. It was, it was unbelievable. It was one of the best performances I've ever seen on a basketball court. To play all 48 minutes like that in a moment where your team desperately needs you to be as efficient as he was as a scorer, nobody could stay in front of him. Like, absolutely zero human beings on planet Earth could stay in front of him last night. He's so shifty. His shot-making is so unbelievable. I mean, that shot where he got the ball with, like, three seconds left on the shot clock and had to put together, like, two quick counters into a wrong-footed pull-up three. Over a defender who was right there. Yeah. Chris Middleton was there. Those are things that, like... No, nobody else on planet Earth basically can do because nobody else is seven foot tall with that high of a release point and that shifty. I mean, Kevin Durant is look, this has been a very pro Kevin Durant podcast for a long time, and it will continue to be that. I'm just glad that like people have it seems like it seems like last night. For whatever reason, I'm not saying this is right. I think it's really fucking stupid that people didn't give Kevin Durant his due before, but. It seems like last night could act as a bit of a turning point for people getting back on the Kevin Durant side of things. And he's he's an unbelievable player. Durant had to do some creation last night, which has not been his forte. Not not he's he's inconsistent as a passer, but the, the Bucks couldn't stop him. So that was sometimes creating looks for others. the The way that Steve Nash and the coaching staff eventually like had him screening for Joe Harris. There was a play that Harden threw a wonderful pass that uh, uh, that generated. Uh, Harris has only made two pointer of the game, and for me, what what's so memorable about that Durant performance is the degree of difficulty, physically, 
mentally and skill-wise. So mm-hmm. playing all 48 minutes, most of the time, he was their best defensive player on the four. Not that their defense was great, but he was their best defensive player on the four. He was the only offensive player who could simultaneously pass and move. So that is that is something that he can that that Kevin Durant can do that James Harden at his present state cannot. Um, and they needed every iota of that Durant performance in order to do it. He had 17 rebounds, was very was disruptive on the defensive end, not possession by possession, but had his real spots. So it's going to be. I, I mean, it, it is it is an indelible performance. It is the, as you said, it's his masterpiece. And yes, this is not Kevin Durant's highest, technically his highest scoring playoff game ever. He had 50 against the Clippers in a game in 2019. But this was incredible. And he had to do everything. He did do everything. And now the Nets are still alive because that's the other part of this. I talked about the degree of difficulty. Were the stakes? Yep. The stakes were incredibly high in that game. Like it, it's hard to overstate how unbelievably high it is when it's Milwaukee up 17 in the third quarter. They were up 17 midway through the third quarter. That's the other thing. Like, oh my god, it, it was just like watching a slow car crash on the part of Milwaukee too. Like, I don't understand what Mike Budenholzer is doing in this series. He's not this dumb. Like, Mike Budenholzer has been an incredibly successful NBA coach, and he's never really adjusted, but at the same token, like, you can't be, you can't have the success that he has had over the course of his career with, like, in Atlanta, for instance, a good roster, but not an overwhelmingly talented roster, right? You can't have had the success that he's had over the course of his career and still not be able to just be totally inert in the playoffs, right? Like the fact that they're still setting ball screens 23 feet from the rim, 22 feet from the rim is bonkers to me. Like well, set a ball screen 30 feet from the rim for God's sake, make well, them cover more it, area and space. Point. Like defensively do something a little bit different. Like throw Giannis on Kevin Durant for three possessions. Not, I'm not saying you put him on him the whole time, Right. Giannis's best skill defensively is being really, really good in help. But you know what? It might help just to get Kevin Durant thinking about things a little bit differently if you put the guy that's 6'11 with a 7'6 wingspan on him who can actually move his feet a little bit, right? Um, and look, maybe it wouldn't work. Kevin Durant was in such a zone last night that it was just, it was one of the best performances in NBA history. But maybe you can, maybe he goes for 43, 17, and 10 if. You make them think about things a little bit differently. It's just, it's tricky. You know what I, like, I I understand that, um, I understand that NBA coaching is hard on the fly, but like, he's just done nothing now for two straight years. And it's, it's hard to really, uh, hard to really like make excuses for that at this point. And the one to me that was so much more galling in game five than other points in this series is that Brooklyn played James Harden. 45 and a half minutes, he could not move defensively and really much offensively. And on both ends of the floor, the Bucks did not sufficiently attack that. Like you are given yep. a huge competitive advantage. And Harden, I mean, I thought that he was a net negative in the first half and, and more of a net positive in the second half. But a lot of that was just the Bucks not challenging him enough. And so whether that's put the ball in the hands of somebody like Drew Holiday and say, Drew, Make a couple of moves, make him make him push off, react, second efforts, everything else like that. And they failed at that. And then there were other moments where they didn't realize Harden was shooting every three-pointer short and he wasn't driving at all. And so, oh, yep. you can actually do something with that. You don't have to take Brook Lopez off the floor because Kevin Durant is massacring him. You could just put Brook Lopez on Harden and say, okay, James, you want to shoot some threes? You're 0 for 8. Take a couple more. Yep. Yeah, totally that. And look, part of that isn't even on Mike Budenholzer either. Like, sure, but but on, it's. I mean, he's still the he's still the head of the ship. And if the player, totally. like, if the players, if the players aren't doing it, and you want them to do it. You light into them to do it. Yeah. No. And I agree with that. But like on some level too, Giannis, for instance, on that like fadeaway heard around the world where James Harden was like, "No, back off. I got this." On Giannis, like. He knows that Giannis is going to fade away or he's going to be able to just or he's going to attack and he's going to be able to hack the shit out of him. Right. So that's on Giannis. Giannis needs to pull that ball out and try to get ahead of steam, I think. 
and force the defense to collapse and maybe make a pass because he's such an adept passer for someone who's 6'11", or just try to be hardened to the spot so that when he tries to foul you, inevitably, he really actually is fouling you before he can stop you from going to the rim and getting a clean look at the rim and scoring, right? So part of this is on Giannis. Like I, I, he had 34 and 12 and, or 32 and 14 or whatever the hell he had last night. But it's, I, and I think that like drew and Middleton last night were a bigger problem than Giannis, but at the same token, like Giannis is the head of the snake here and he did not perform well enough last night. And this is a team that has genuine NBA title aspirations. And you only go as far as your best player can take you in the biggest moments. And Giannis has, over the course of the last three years now, unfortunately not been able to take them to where they need to go in the late fourth quarter moments that are most important in tight games. And it's also a a challenge that the Bucs are dealing with a best player who is not a great free throw shooter and who doesn't particularly appear to want to take those free throws in crunch time. And that, you know, I don't know what, why he mishandled the ball with like 16 seconds to go when they had a chance to take the lead. I don't know if that was spooked on free throws or if that was just him thinking a step ahead or something else. I mean, that shit happens, right? Like it does. It does. It could just be random chance. It probably was, but all of those things do fit together. And it's a challenge that Milwaukee's going to have to rectify. And then the other part of it is, yes, Giannis guarding Kevin Durant's an interesting idea, but Giannis is a talented defender who cannot get through a screen like that. Is, and and he is physically capable at some point in his career of doing it if he wants to put in the time and everything. Because while he is a big dude, he also moves very well. And so what part of what Kevin Durant has done, like he's driven by him in isolation too. But the huge... One of the huge wrinkles that the Nets brought in towards the second half of Game 5, which opened things up and allowed Durant, after actually a fairly rough, by his standards, first half, was they started setting the screens for Durant when he had the ball in his hands. And so then that way, P.J. Tucker has to recover. And that is something very different. He can't be as handsy, everything else. And so, like, that is something that is not going away. And if if you replace P.J. Tucker with Giannis, you don't solve the question. Now, maybe if you try to have... P.J. Tucker and Giannis as the two players guarding the screener. But Brooklyn, none of their screeners are particularly amazing. They'll just set the screen with someone else. Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I'm cons- I think Milwaukee genuinely should win this series just based off of talent and based off. I still I still think they will. Um, what I, their I, potential I, adjustments are. But, it, but I mean, like, I mean, Kevin Durant and, and Jeff Green going seven for eight. Now, you can argue Jeff Green going seven for eight from three that. You, that could be offset by Joe Harris hitting some of the good looks that he missed, though I think the Bucks deserve some credit for making those looks, some of them, harder. Maybe Harden can jump shoot a little bit better in a, in a subsequent game, but also, like, I mean, the effort that it took, I don't, maybe Kevin Durant is capable of this, maybe missing part of the season, and, and he has the juice to play another two 48-minute games, but... I mean, Brooklyn needed a lot to go right to win this game at home. And so I, th- I think the Bucks win game six. And then after that, who the hell knows? I would say that the Bucks win game six if Mike Budenholzer is willing to make the adjustments necessary that actually make sense within the context of winning a seven-game playoff series against one of the best players on planet Earth. Uh, actually, frankly, the best player on planet Earth and Kevin Durant. Um Beyond that, it's it's hard for me to have confidence right now. Oh, oh, just no is. reason to have. There is no reason to have confidence. Well, the the reason to have confidence is that Milwaukee, when Kyrie and James Harden are hurt like this, Milwaukee is a better team than them. Like <laughs> Milwaukee is a more talented group than the freaking Brooklyn Nets without Kyrie and James Harden. And look, I like this is making excuses beyond what we should make excuses for Milwaukee for. I do think the Dante DiVincenzo thing really hurt them because that was 35 minutes a night of a guy that can play on both ends of the court that is not a mismatch for any of those guys out there, right? Um, he's not a guy that makes you play four on five on one end of the court. Like Pat Connaughton, I'm sorry, but like Pat Connaughton was getting roasted last night. Yes, like, he was. It's it's a big loss to lose 35 minutes a night or 30 minutes a night of a two-way player that can bring you 
actual like maybe not necessarily value but isn't a negative when he's out there in the biggest moments like dante can yeah fair point so all right danny uh this has been fun my my brain is sufficiently broken i am glad that uh (laughs) glad that uh we were able to do this i'm glad you convinced me to do this because that was fun by the way uh, i'm going to see fast nine tonight so that's what i was looking for when I woke, I was looking forward to that when I woke up this morning. Uh, and you gave me something to pass the time until Fast 9 at 6.30 p.m. tonight. Or is it F9? I'm sorry. Fast and Whatever. Furious 9. Whatever it's called. The naming conventions in that series are almost as convoluted as the, com- as the uh, continuity. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It, do- it doesn't matter. We know Han's back. That's all we care about. We've seen it in the trailers. That's the most important thing. Uh, Danny, tell the people where they can find your work. You can check out podcasting. It's pretty much uh, dunked on, dunked on, dunked on Prime. Nate and I are doing both things now. We also do the live show NBA Cast, um, which is through Hot Mic right now, um, which is pretty fun. You can it it syncs up with your audio. The really cool piece of technology, and then at some point you'll probably see some work by the two of us together at the Athletic. Um, I'm. I'm recovering from a broken collarbone, so I'm not writing as much right now, but I will be back soon. How in the hell did you break your collarbone? I fell on a bicycle the way most people break their collarbone. So, like, this is like the pilot of the West Wing? <laughs> I mean, sure. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, Danny, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a month out, so we're, we're, okay. get, we're getting there. Get better soon, Danny. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We'll be back later this week. I've got a podcast scheduled to record with Matt Penny tomorrow. It'll probably go up uh, at this point on Saturday, uh, U.S. time, maybe Friday, U.S. time. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.